I'm a great believer that uh, uh, diplomacy is extremely important, that uh, we have a number of issues where we can work with China, and they will be beneficial to both of us, and that we ought to have regular high-level meetings between our two presidents, and that we ought to have working groups that report to them that meet perhaps quarterly and and begin to pick the low-hanging fruit. You mentioned tariffs. That's hurting our workers, our businesses, our farmers, and it's hurting China. Welcome to The Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Thursday, June 30th, 2022. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, as well as listen to our podcasts, please visit our website. And if you can, support us on Substack. You'll also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual places. My guest today is the Honorable Carla and Anderson Hills, who is speaking with us today from Washington, D.C. Welcome, Ambassador Hills. I know this is a very busy time for you. Thank you very much. Let me tell you a bit about our guest if you don't already know about her. Carla Anderson Hills is a Californian who was trained as a lawyer at Yale and studied at Oxford. She has an illustrious career as an attorney, a diplomat, a negotiator, a cabinet official, advisor, and director to Fortune 500 companies and institutions. She heads her own global advisory firm, Hills & Co., a prominent member of the Republican Party. She previously served as the fifth United States Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under President Gerald Ford and as the 10th United States Trade Representative under President George H.W. Bush. Ambassador Hills was the first woman to hold each of these posts and the third female ever to serve in a presidential cabinet. As a woman active in international trade policy, she's someone I have long admired. She is here today to share her observations about a wide-ranging number of issues in in global affairs. And also, she is co-chair, by the way, of the Council on Foreign Relations. Carla, welcome to the Hale Report. Thank you so much for joining me today. I know you're one of the busiest people in Washington, so our listeners really appreciate your time today. And if you've listened to any of my other podcasts, you know that I always ask my guests how they first became involved in what would later become their life's work. You began with the law, but what fueled your interest in international affairs? At Yale Law School, I was very interested in uh, international law. I can remember talking to a law firm saying uh, that was my interest. And uh, the gentleman interviewing me said, do you want to be Secretary of State or sign a contract with the Saudis? <laughs> and I'll never forget that. <laughs> but I was interested. What in, a question. <laughs> I was very interested in, uh, in the law and how it applied more broadly. My specialty was litigation because my first position was as an assistant U.S. attorney in Los Angeles. 
And uh, when we I started the law firm, uh, then known as uh, uh, Munger Tolls and Hills in Los Angeles with my husband and Charlie Munger, Roy Tolls, uh, my practice was basically antitrust law, which of course takes into consideration uh, powers behind, beyond borders. And uh, so that was the beginning. Uh, it grew, and uh, I still am interested in international relations. Well, you have a formidable reputation as a negotiator. You led U.S. efforts for NAFTA and the GATT as well. How do you see, I really have been wanting to ask you this for a long time, how do you see the development, the evolution of the WTO, for example? Is it still an effective organization as you know, when you first began working with it and building it? It needs to be upgraded, just like a house. If you had a house that was 50 years old, you would need to look at the pipes and painting and roofing and so forth. Uh, the economy has changed. You know, when uh, the WTO, World Trade Organization, was formed, digital economy was not a subject. Uh, we were selling uh, heavy products. And so the rules are just not up to speed. And that takes leadership. And the United States, along with its friends and allies, should work on that because it's an invaluable institution. I think that all of our global institutions are probably in need of an upgrade. I think that's a fair, very fair comment. Um, how do you see how things have devolved today? For example, did you ever imagine, I never imagined that we'd have the kind of war going on in the Ukraine that we have now and the effect that it's had globally, the impact on food and energy prices. Do you think that, um, how do you see the consequences of the ongoing expansion of NATO, for example? Today it was announced that we will have a, the U.S. will have a permanent base in Poland. Is this wise? Is this the way? Are we going in the right direction is what I'm really asking, given that it seems that we're at a very difficult moment in history. We are at a very difficult moment in history. And uh, I think NATO is extremely important. I applaud the administration for adding four Asians to come to the meeting. You know, Australia, Japan, New Zealand, and South Korea. Uh, as a global inst institution, we need to have global members. And the more who can abide by rules of the road, whatever that road is, whether it's strategic or trade, it makes it much more important. And it's shocking what has happened in the Ukraine. But one of the pluses that have come out of it is that it has caused the Western alliance to bond more comprehensively. And uh, I hope that we can keep that up. Our current president's predecessor was not in favor of bringing the group together. At all. Uh, yeah. You know, we, mm -hmm. not all. And uh, so we need to work because all of the problems that we face in the future uh, are not going to uh, stop at our borders. A wall won't work. It won't work for health. 
it won't work for climate. And frankly, on the digital economy, it won't work unless we can uh, begin to have bonds and rules that govern what we say we will do. And in fact, we will do it. Which brings me to China and um, uh, the, the Biden trade agenda. I'm wondering what you think of the current team. And in light of inflation, do you think that the, the uh, Trump tariffs should be lifted? The Peterson Institute came out with a report saying that that would shave inflation by a quarter of a percent. But if all tariffs were lifted by 2%, that that would um, have a considerable almost 2% impact on inflation itself at a time when we're really suffering from that. Um, what do you feel about the, the U.S.-China trade relationship? Well, I was really optimistic when uh, President Biden took over the office. Uh, I thought, here comes a man with 36 years of experience in the Senate as chair of the foreign policy, who knew everybody up there, and Catherine Tai, who had worked in U.S. Trade Office and on Congress on trade, I thought- And is, oh, speaks Chinese <laughs> too, right? Absolutely. She speaks Mandarin, no question mm -hmm. about it. And she's very, very nice and able. Uh, I thought that we would see a complete shift from the name calling and the problems that we had with uh, his predecessor, but it's gone more slowly than I would like. Uh, I think we've had fewer meetings than I would like. I'm a great believer that uh, uh, diplomacy is extremely important, that uh, we have a number of issues where we can work with China and they will be beneficial to both of us and that we ought to have regular high-level meetings between our two presidents, and that we ought to have working groups that report to them that meet perhaps quarterly and, and begin to pick the low-hanging fruit. You mentioned tariffs. That's hurting our workers, our businesses, our farmers, and it's hurting China. So here is something that we could do that would be a win-win situation. And, uh, you know, when I ask uh, people in the current administration, what is the policy? You've got to have a policy and you've got to have a strategy for how you're going to implement the strategy. Too often, I'm told, well, our plan is worker-centric. That's not a trade policy. So I would like to have them set out a way of working with China. China has huge need for respect. And yes, they have sinned. They have sinned internationally in South China Sea. But let's try to find some areas where we can solve the issue and then start to build the bonds that would let us begin to solve the next level of difficulty on issues. I'm looking forward. I've heard that there is a summit in the works between President Xi Jinping and President Biden. And I hope that happens as soon as possible. I think a world that's divided between China and the United States with completely separate interests, even if we don't share values, is going to be a much poorer world in the end. I agree with you 100%. And all the issues that we face 
we have to have the two largest economies in the world um, uh, get together and work together to make the system work. As you mentioned, uh, health and climate and all these things, right? And trade. And trade. Mm -hmm. uh, I really believe that we ought to talk more about the rules that govern what you signed to do. And if you have agreed to give me national treatment, non-discrimination, you've got to abide by that. I'm not going to get you to change the system that you have. To call you non-democratic is not going to win any points. Uh, That system is there to stay. And uh, what we want is compliance with the rules that we sat down and pounded out over the past 50 years. I agree. The rules make everything different. What what I see, though, and I wonder if you agree with me here, it seems that trade interests and defense and security interests are becoming increasingly intertwined. And it worries me that that will result in potentially trade blocks. Uh, Instead of having a free global trading system, we're going to have blocks of trade with different kinds of regulations and standards and so forth. Do you think that's a danger? It is a danger. Uh, At least it robs you of the benefits that would come from, as you describe it, a free and open economy. And uh, we may have some restrictions that we have to have, but the fewer that we have, the better it is. And that takes diplomacy. You don't call the other side of the table uh, names. That doesn't get you any place. The problem is with respect to China and the United States, we're both in a serious political year. Yes. And if you look at the polls in the United States, regardless of party, China is has very low approval ratings. If you look at the polls of uh, the of Americans in China, it's the same thing. So it's hard for either to give, and that's why I think that you need small first steps, picking low hanging fruit, beginning to build bonds, and then build on your successes, however small they may be. That's why I thought lifting some of the tariffs could be a step like that, uh, which would be a win-win. Is there anything else that you see that we could do along those lines? Right. Uh, lifting some of the tariffs, but then China must lift the tariff, the retaliatory tariffs that they've imposed. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Again, that's a win-win. And you look for things so that as a matter of politics, you can show that uh, both sides got something out of this arrangement. And uh, by sitting down and talking to your counterpart, how do we work through this issue? How do we work through that issue? It's uh, helpful. And uh, we should be doing a lot more than that. Diplomacy matters on both strategic and economic issues. You know, the issue now that it's, it's not easy for someone like me to travel to China and hasn't been for some time, and um, younger China scholars have no opportunity to spend time in China right now as well. Journalists have are also very scarce now, Western journalists uh, anywhere in China. I think that hurts China. I think that people-to-people bonds 
actually help build trust and willingness to work together. And you can change polls where people know each other. You know, you talk to people who know people in China and they say, oh, I know that professor. He's so bright and he writes so well. Uh, But if you've never met him, you're not going to say that. Well, some of this is definitely self-inflicted by China, the zero COVID policy in particular, I think. That, That hurt China. That hurt China, and it hurt China's economy. But uh, again, they have their their way of handling things. It stopped inward uh, investment, and you know if you have to quarantine for fourteen or twenty one days to have a meeting for one day, you're not going to go. No CEO can do that. Yeah, no CEO has the time to do that. For example. Mm-hmm. We'll see. You know, there are there are a whole series, and you and I have, have mentioned this, there are a whole series of summits that have been created and new organizations, particularly in what is the new Indo-Pacific region. And um, are these new, do you think that China, though, is seeing this as a kind of encirclement? Are they, is this beneficial? And is India really on board? How do you look at that? That's a lot of questions. That's a lot of questions at once. I'm sorry. You could split those up. (laughs) Well, I like to see the organizations grow in size. I mean, I was uh, pleased that uh, the uh, NATO invited the four uh, Asian nations, Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Korea, and Japan. And uh, because the more that we can work together, the better it is. Uh, But uh, we don't want to have them say we're anti-China. Let's find out how we can try to get some solutions to the problems that we face. And my goodness, uh, I've never seen it more complicated than it is today with strategic issues, the Ukraine, Russian invasion, which was absolutely mind-boggling that they would do that. But uh, uh, these are issues that we have to work with others if we're going to have a success. Whether we describe the organizations that we join as being anti a given country or whether we join them as being allies, I think makes a difference. And uh, right. I, so, again, you get back to diplomacy And your purpose, your purpose is to try to move in a positive direction, either strategically or economically or both. And then, um, for example, AUSCAS, um, that organization is really a defense-related organization. That's specifically that. But again, I just really see these issues intermingling and uh, and making uh, things more complicated maybe than they used to be. And they're coming fast and furious. Now there's a new one, the Blue Pacific Initiative, for example. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Which also now, and somehow the United Kingdom is part of all of these Pacific institutions. So so unusual, uh, unusual alliances, I think. You know what it has also struck me, and I began as a a Japan scholar, is the Japan's changing role. 
Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Abe, you have been very active in U.S.-Japan relations. It seems to be a, a total movement away from their previous position of almost a neutrality. Uh, where do you think it's going? Well, I think that uh, what Japan sees is the problems that you, we have been discussing and that uh, they want to be on the right side of the uh, of the problem, and they've become our, one of our strongest allies, uh, and particularly in Asia, so that uh, when we're able to have Japan and South Korea join us, it makes a difference. But, uh, uh, you know, we should meet with them often and, and try to work together, uh, but the challenges are immense today. Yeah, I think Japan is doubling its defense budget. Yes. Too, mm-hmm, which will be seen immediately by China as a threat. So we get into this escalation that really does concern me. I sometimes think that we should ask ourselves as we take various policy steps, what would we do if the other side of the table were to do that? Um I remember that when we were some years ago, the the Chinese in Fujian had missiles pointed at uh, Taiwan, and uh, we had boats that were uh, going down the coast of China, and uh, there there was great unhappiness of that. And I asked an admiral, what would we do? if the Chinese were to send military vessels outside of Norfolk and uh, down our coast regularly, he said our hair would be on fire. And so but that's right. <laughs> we ought to ask ourselves uh, when uh, we take a step, what are the repercussions? How would we react? Is it going to accomplish our goal? I get back to in every area, whether it is strategic or economic, you have to have a plan. What is it you're trying to accomplish? And then you have to have a strategy, depending on all the circumstance. How are you going to implement that plan? And uh, we need a little bit more muscle in that department, I think. Absolutely. Do you think that if TPP had actually, uh, if the United States had joined TPP, would that have been a a positive step? Was that a mistake not to become part? We should have been a member of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It was a splendid organization. You know, if you look at trade agreements, they're sort of like steps going up. The first trade agreement, the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, dealt with life as it was, Uh, in, uh, you know, the 1970s. And then when we got to the Uruguay round and built out the World Trade Organization, it dealt with new things, intellectual property protection, services, enforcement, and areas that were not sufficiently dealt with at the GATT. And, you know, one of the reasons for success of the World Trade Organization was that had that negotiation had collapsed in Europe in 1991. 
And we finished the North American Free Trade Agreement between the United States, Canada, and Mexico that year um, and uh, shook hands on it. Uh, and the president signed it after he had lost the election and President Clinton got it through our Congress. But within four months of that agreement taking effect, that brought all the then about 123 members of the uh, GAF back to the negotiating table and they picked out services, protection of intellectual property, finance, things that had they had not been willing to do. So the, they, it set an example. And I thought if we had been a member, a founding member of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that also built on the WTO's uh, agenda because there are things it does not have. And uh, having it in a, a model that it could borrow from this, that uh, the accumulation of countries, if you look at the number of countries that were members of the TPP, including the United States, it would be a majority of global GDP. And so that's a terrific selling point for trying to move ahead. I think we still should get back into that agreement. I think it's a fine agreement. It has a lot of, uh, of Asian members. We talk about the Indo-Pacific economic framework. That is not a trade agreement. That is trying to bring a few parties together to talk about some various issues. But there's no uh, additional advantage in a trade concept. And so you're not going to get others to sign a board with alacrity because what do they get out of it? You know, it seems that at the same time the U.S. has pulled back from in international institutions, China's done the opposite. And they've, in, in fact, been um, doing what some people call institutional capture. And um, that has been changing the dynamics of some of those institutions, as I understand it, like the WTO. So they're not quite the same as they used to be prior to the um, uh, to the influence of China, wh who, who also became a member under Bill Clinton, right? <laughs> well, I would say that uh, the, the fault lies with uh, lack of leadership in the WTO by its members. That's not the uh, Secretary General. Uh, to enforce the rules, we have rules that require national treatment. We have rules that require notification of subsidies. We have rules that require non-discrimination. And if you don't enforce those rules, then you weaken your organization. There is an article, I believe Article 25, where if members do not follow the rules and it is causing harm to other members, they can be invited to leave. And, you know, if a member wants to stay in and is threatened by enforcement, that's more likely to get them to follow the rules, particularly when a majority of the members are saying, look, you know, I want to be diplomatic with you, but you're not following the rules. And this is a rules-based organization. Well, another model is the Paris Climate Agreement. And 
as I understand that, that so many of those countries had their own individual exceptions that it rendered the agreement practically worthless. So they all had exceptions that, that you know, sort of belied the spirit of working together. Yeah, it, it, I think it's harder and harder. And also there's a kind of populist sentiment against globalization now as well. I think the United States has been, in, uh, you know, temperamentally an isolationist country for, for a couple centuries. <laughs> so I wonder if there, you know, is it, do you see um, a decline in public interest in global institutions and becoming member or did the things that happened because of increased trade, the um, closing of factories and so forth, is this also having a long-term impact on the political aspect of this? Globalization, unless you explain what it does and what it does not do. The opening of your market provides opportunities for companies. And you can look at the data and the opportunities have created great growth in GDP, both nationally and internationally. Poverty rates have plummeted from like 40% down to 8% globally. That's important. On the other hand, if your factory closes because it's outcompeted, or poorly run, or for whatever reason. We ought to have a policy to deal with the greatest asset we have, which is our population. And the talent, right. And we need to upgrade the people because you can just look how fast technology is changing. We need to train them for the jobs of tomorrow that have arrived today. And we didn't do that. Uh, so trade got blamed, but the fact is that if we we didn't have trade, the, the economy would change, and it would be wonderful if we would post all the open jobs on the internet, that uh, we would provide a stipend to get you who are in West Virginia to a job that you really wanted that was in Wisconsin. Uh, and uh, then to give you a stipend for perhaps your training or perhaps the international company that was interested in trade would provide you with that training. But you would have a stipend to give you breakfast, lunch, and dinner during the 25 weeks of training, and then that company would hire you. Uh, it would pay back in a period of time, 10 years, through the taxes that you would pay. Because if you're laid off, you pay no taxes. If you get a better job and move up the escalator of, of, uh, of jobs, then you begin to pay the taxes. So it would be an investment in our future. And we didn't do that. We need to have more programs of, like that, that. So I agree we need to be worker-centric. But what are you going to do because, you know, the trade adjustment assistance doesn't handle it. The vast majority of jobs lost was through incompetence or change in technology. They were not because of trade. Our trade would have plummeted if we couldn't have gotten that widget from country A or the, ta the uh, uh, 
piece of equipment from country B. That makes a difference, and that makes us more competitive. But we need to make our, our labor force more attuned to today's economy, not yesterday. And we're not going to go back. We're not going to go back to where- They're not going to reshore and do all those things. It's not realistic. Well, you could get, I, I do believe that in your long supply chains, that some redundancy on those that are highly critical or getting them more nearer to home, just for the very reason that if you need something from your pharmacy and your local pharmacy doesn't carry it, well- you you have to go a long way away. But if you could get that local pharmacy to carry it or something closer, maybe it's in between, that's important. I think those kinds of, and of course, semiconductors with the vulnerability of Taiwan right now, we need to be on steroids <laughs> to make sure. And Taiwan is <laughs> making we are. a big investment in the United mm-hmm. States in semiconductors. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have to also make ourselves look attractive abroad. You know, when you pick up the newspaper every morning and there's somebody that's been murdered or mass uh, homicide in some school, uh, you know, you don't look that attractive. Uh, When you watch the photos of those breaking into our Congress and breaking the windows and, you know, here this institution that stood, you don't look that attractive. And so we need to remember that you lead in part by the model that you set. And it's very, very important in my view. I I completely agree with that. And businesses want predictability and stability. And, you know, I'm, I'm in Ohio now, not far from where the new Intel semiconductor factory will be. But in Chicago, we have a tremendous problem today. Um, I can't imagine a foreign business would want to invest in our, our our otherwise beautiful city. So it's a shame that we aren't able to deal with these social issues in the kind of way that you're describing, you know, offering training, for example. And it doesn't um, all that's, come mm-hmm. from the center. I think that businesses, uh, the uh, chambers of commerce, the uh, business roundtable, rotary clubs and so forth, could set up systems with the government and that more thought should be given to how to do that. And uh, some if some large corporations are making an effort to uh, make a difference in terms of training and attracting a workforce. Well, it's as you said before, it is all about leadership and the vision to be able to do that. And I don't see that kind of momentum or energy right now. Um, and perhaps because there are all these other things going on, maybe COVID also drained the energy. Uh, and now we are, because of that and the reaction to it, we now have an economic situation where we might be slipping into recession, which would make all of those things more difficult for those companies you know, to achieve. So we didn't do it, in other words, when times were good. And now it's going to be harder to do it, but maybe even more necessary. But maybe that's the role of government. You know, the government has to play that role, it seems. It's the role of government, but our government is supported by the people. And the people have a role to play. 
And uh, then that's why I mentioned the various business organizations, but there are other organizations as well. And that's where leadership comes from. You know, what um, I've also been thinking about, um, you are the chief negotiator on NAFTA, and now we have a new NAFTA, the USMCA, and how we deal with the issues just in our own neighborhood, even with Mexico. um, And there's a new summit for um, South American, for American companies, countries. Um, And um, however, um, talking to one of our EconView experts, he said that there's really China and Russia are the predominant influences now in all of South America, not the United States, because of their investments, and that we have fallen behind in terms of the influence that we that we used to have. But what could we do to make the relationships and the trade relationships um, better between Canada and the United States and Mexico and the United States, so that we could have redundancy, for example, if, if if China is not a possibility for certain things that need to be closer to home, shouldn't Mexico be more of an ally than it is? Well, we may have disagreements with the Mexican president on a number of issues. I think our relationship overall with the people is good. And uh, I think that the uh, summit of the Americas was a good idea. You know, in fairness to the president, our president, his inbox was overflowing when he took over. You mentioned the pandemic, but the economic repercussions from the epidemic, and also the fact that we had alienated our friends and neighbors, that we opposed tariffs on Canada for steel and aluminum that we had uh, done that with our other allies as well, makes it really hard to be able to put things together. I would disagree that, that Russia and China have greater influence in uh, Latin America than we do, but we need to bolster it, and that takes meetings. And in the last administration, they didn't have Uh, the leaders' meetings that they regularly had. And I go back to my firm belief that annual meetings, even biannual meetings between the heads of state with working groups, with the heads, with the cabinet members meeting, if it's an economic one, it could be the Secretary of Commerce, Trade, Treasury. If it's a, a strategic one, you know, defense and so forth. The uh, uh, that would make a difference to work through the various issues. I mean, I disagree, for example, on the Summit for the Americas, that we disinvited those who are not democratic. If there was one time when we wanted to reach out and to try to show non-democratic governments how we all get along and can work out rules, this was the time to do it. And uh, I think that uh, it was a mistake. It's, uh, you can't, and, and many have pointed out, how can you disinvite the, uh, the various members and then others who are 
part of the Summit of the Americas say, well, we won't come. Mexico didn't come because we had not invited uh, uh, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua. And so we had about seven that didn't come. And that affects, I mean, what we're trying to do is to create a, an alliance among the Western Hemisphere, the nations of the Western Hemisphere, and make it more solid. Can't do that if you say, well, you have different views than I do. Uh, let's talk about where we can work together in a constructive way that is good for both our people. What I don't understand is why people just can't hold this concept in their mind that we don't share values with every other country, but we have common interests and we should be able to move forward on that basis <laughs> because we're not going to be able to convince them that our way of doing things, as you said, because of the situation that we have in the United States right now, are we, it's hard for us to say we're leading by example right now. We're not leading by example. We're not the little house on the hill. <laughs> so I know that you serve as, as an advisor to and board member to um, some preeminent American companies. How are they dealing with all of this uncertainty and looking at the risks that's involved now with international trade? Have you seen a change in their, in in the questions that they're asking themselves and the investments that they're making? Are they slowing down um, over and above the pandemic, which caused everybody to stop? But is there something that's more lasting that has occurred? Or do you think that this will reverse itself in a, in a short period of time? <laughs> I hope. <laughs> Fingers <laughs> crossed, Carl. <laughs> I hope it does reverse itself. Uh, for every corporation, of course, it's different. They have their own plan. They have their own strategy. I think that uh, one of the things that bothers all corporations is the uncertainty. What are the rules going to be, not only here at home, but beyond the borders? And uh, that makes it very difficult to uh, uh, plan long term. And of course, we have all these other difficulties that are going to impact whether you're in the energy business. What does that mean? Uh, do I continue to try to develop my energy resources or am I going to be cut off? Uh, if uh, you're in the tech business, are they going to keep me out? I mean, do I have to localize data and then I, I'm not uh, uh, in uh, free flow of data with rules that govern that? So the uncertainty is a big problem. And that's why we need to work with our friends allies, and even those that uh, disagree with us on many areas in hopes that we can get rules that govern our commercial activities. And when we do nothing, then other places take the lead. A good example of that would be privacy issues. It has been overtaken by Europe and GDPR. And yet their decisions affect every company that does business you know, uh, American companies that do business there are pretty much anywhere. So it, uh, this lack of leadership is really, really concerning. So um, it, it, what do you think could be done to make things better, Carla? Really, you've got this incredible breadth of experience and, 
you know, you've worked for various presidents and you've seen the issues that they face and the limits maybe of, of what they can do. Um, if, if you could be um, the empress of North America <laughs> tomorrow <laughs> and you had the ability to put things into actions, what would be your plan? Um, what do you think the plan should be? Well, as I have said, I'm a b- big believer in diplomacy. I think that requires regular members of your organization to meet with their counterparts and uh, that you develop a plan for each area and a strategy to implement that plan. And uh, in some areas, we've done better than in other areas. But uh, digging out of the hole that we found ourselves as a result of the last administration, in many respects, has created a problem. Most administrations come in and they uh, manage, but they're not dealing with the kinds of problems that you and I have not seen in our lifetime. And uh, so it's a challenge, but I have confidence that uh, we will be able to overcome it given time and the good work of uh, various institutions, our corporations, our nonprofits, and people like you who try to inform uh, the rest of the public about the issues that confront us. Our reaction ought not to be a negative, I hate you. It ought to be, how do we work through this and find solutions? And all the problems that we have discussed have solutions. They're, you know, they don't have to be deadly. Yeah, they're not fatal. They don't need to be <laughs> fatal don't. unless we make them <laughs> fatal, as <laughs> I guess guess the issue. Well, thank you so much for sharing, you know, your experience with us and also um, your insights um, because you, you've been there all the way along and you've seen how it's developed and you created some of the world that we now live in. Oh, shame on me. <laughs> <laughs> but the good parts... I think I will I will I will amend that to say the the useful parts and I hope that that there's a way to bolster them over time and people will realize no we really cannot live without these discussions and diplomacy that we they're absolutely critical for us. You're very generous and it's a pleasure to always talk with you. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you to the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible, managing editor Ying Zan and our producer Sam Fu. And please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. Mm-hmm.